Mikey, it's so nice to have you all here. Welcome back, those who haven't seen in a while. And welcome for the first time, if uh, this is your first uni fellowship thing. It's great to have you along. I work with the uh, staff, together with the student leaders who put on events like this throughout the week. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, if you're a regular churchgoer, we'd love you to not see this as a replacement to stuff you do at church, but as a thing that kind of, during this season of life, enhances and, and turbocharges your um, bit of nitro for your church experience, that uh, adds a bit of extra um, you know, kind of energy input, extra connections with people across different churches and faculties, all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you don't go to church and uh, you're not a Christian at all, then one of the things we really want to do is give people opportunities to investigate Christianity and ask questions and uh, get a different point of view. And so we run public events like this, we run small groups, we call them fellowship groups, which are prayer, Bible study groups around the, uh, the, around the place. But we also have the option of, if someone wants to meet up and, and learn about Christianity you know, in a discussion-based kind of way, then we're really keen to do that kind of stuff too. So we're, we're here, we're keen to have you involved with us, keen to get to know you better. I hope tonight is such a positive experience that you want to get, get involved some more in, in other ways. Um, it's definitely, as came up in some of these interviews, it's one of those things, just like making sure you commit some important discipline time to computer games in your life, um, or study, <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, um, uh, love and, you know, those who you're in love with, or your family, or whatever it is, you've got to sort of plan some of these things. Um, it's a bit the same with groups like this, that it's, um, I think sometimes uh, it can be easy to sort of go along to one thing, and then just like gets busy, and then you miss out on getting into the routine. You've got to kind of build in a bit of a routine. Um, and so I'd really love to encourage you to sort of try and make some time for at least some of the stuff we do, build it into the, the life package along with those other important things like computer games and study and, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, we're looking tonight at the theme of love, sex and marriage and it's part of a, a bunch of our, our meetings, both the evenings we do and the mornings we'll be doing, um, the breakfast meetings we do. We're looking at a range of different kinds of uh, big questions, you know, whether they're ethical kind of lifestyle questions like this one, um, later on in the semester, we'll look at some more philosophical questions. What is the meaning of life? That kind of thing. So we're going to do a range of these kind of big questions. And I hope they're really interesting and relevant and, uh, for those, whether you're a Christian or you're, you know, you've got another religious belief or philosophy or just don't know what you think and just are curious and learning more. So we'll give that, give that a go tonight. Okay, love, sex and marriage. Now I've got three points to kind of uh, to cover the time I'll be talking. Um, and you might be able to guess what those three points are. Love, sex, and marriage. <laughs> so I'll be looking at each of those, and they kind of flow one into the other. We're going to be taking questions, by the way, later on. So, you know, as you're listening along, if there's something you'd like to ask, you can either ask it verbally, or we will take... Can we even get the number up there? Is that possible? There you go. So you can even... Um, we might leave that one up, hey, so that if people want to put that... You know, if you think of a question, you text it in. Hamish will get your number. Um, but we're going to delete it after this. It's not like we're going to keep those numbers and those questions. So as long as you can trust that guy, um, <laughs> feel free to use that anonymous method in that sense, but we'll delete that stuff once we've, um, once we've answered the question. Um, but you can do it verbally as well. Um, and we'll do that a bit later on. Okay, but first of all, let's, let's think of these three questions. First of all, I'm not going to do an introduction beyond that because it's such an interesting topic. Like love, sex and marriage. Are you interested? Okay, well, here we go. Love. <laughs> all right, and so in tackling love, I don't want to, in this point, first of all, and only talk about romantic love, falling in love. We're going to get to that, but there's more to love than just romantic love and sexual desire. Um, there's more to love than the love which leads to sex and marriage. A Christian writer and English literature um, fellow and um, uh, public intellectual, C.S. Lewis, wrote for like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you might have heard of. Um, uh, he, he wrote a book called The Four Loves, which makes that point. He, he makes the point that there's more types of love than just sexual desire and romance. He talks about four of them and he uses the ancient Greek um, words for love to describe each of them, storge, philia, eros and agape. In the 80s, uh, psychologist John Allen Lee proposed 15 loves, more of those later. But there's, there's more to love than just sexual desire or romance. That's, that's the, the point. And fundamental amongst all loves, if you want to talk about love from the Christian point of view, is the love of God. Yeah? Um, love is not just a phenomenon that the human species 
experiences. It's not just the outworking of instinct, a strange backfiring of needs for survival and genetic um, propagation. It's not, uh, it's not just an over-sophisticated animal system, but it actually rests in the very nature of the universe. If you've got a Bible, you might want to have a look at this very famous passage, 1 John. Perhaps if you've been to a Christian wedding, you would have heard this read there. 1 John chapter 4 um, is rightly famous, right at the very end of the Bible, for its description of love. It says, this is how God showed his love. Actually, I might go a verse earlier. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. Whoever does not love does not uh, know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit and we've seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. God is love part of the nature of God. God is truth, God is justice, God is powerful, whatever. God is love as well, Christianity says. Actually quite a radical idea in the ancient world. The gods were powerful, they were interested in the sea, or in wealth, or in crops, or in a particular nation or people. But in the ancient world it wasn't assumed that the gods fundamentally cared about us, let alone how we behave to one another. Not, not fundamentally. It was quite a radical idea when the Jews and Christians said, no, the God who is there, there's one God and he not only is powerful and not only wants worship, but he loves us and wants us to love one another. Yeah? God is love. And God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Trinity Christians call it, God is in loving uh, relations in his very being and God shows his love in the world he made, in his mercy and salvation, as 1 John 4 says. God loves the world he made. He, he created the world and takes delight in it, has a positive attitude towards it. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, we read Matthew 19, a bit earlier in the same story of Jesus' life in Matthew 5, Jesus wants to encourage people to, um, to love their fellow human beings. And he says, be like God. God shows um, his kindness to the world by giving good gifts to everybody, whether they're good or bad whether they worship him or not. He shows a, a creator's kindness in any good gift he gives on the world. In the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about, hey, you shouldn't worry about life. Uh, God provides for um, the, the flowers in the field. He provides for the birds of the air. He, he provides for you. Later on, Jesus picks up that same idea and says, hey, look, uh, <clears throat> God watches every sparrow that falls to the ground, and you're worth even more than sparrows. He cares about you. He cares about his creation. There is a love that God has for us as his creatures uh, who belong to him and are precious to him. But we're doubly loved. Loved uh, by our creator because he made us and knows us and loves us. Loved by our creator who saves us and forgives us and welcomes us back to be accepted no matter what we've done wrong. And that's that 1 John 4 that God shows us. Love. God is love. And he shows his love by sending, by God the Son, becoming a human to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, that's the God shows his love even to guilty people. They've done the wrong thing. God is love, yeah. So a huge part of, of how we think about ourselves, define ourselves, evaluate ourselves, self-esteem in other words, you know, or self-identity. A big part of it is not just your family and culture, not just your uh, sex life your romantic life or whether you're married or soon to be married or or how successful you are in your studies or or in wealth or whatever it is but a huge part of what it means to be valuable and precious and for life to be meaningful a, a central part of it is i'm created by god loved by god and god looks on me offering forgiveness to me a christian can say i've accepted the forgiveness of god i'm re-adopted now as god's son or daughter and so I should love others out of the same kind of love. That's what that one John 4 passage says, doesn't it? God loves us, so we should love others. Because God loved at me, I should show that same kind of love. So, yeah, so, um, uh, I mean, Jesus says it elsewhere. Yeah, that God shows his 
kindness to the good and the bad. So you also, don't just love, this is Matthew 5, don't just love the people who love you back and do favours for favours. You know, I'll scratch my back, you scratch, you, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. Um, I'll have you over to my house for, you know, for cake and you invite me back to your place for cake. But it's actually even those who I may not pay me back, even of those who maybe hurt me, I'll think how I can show love and forgiveness. Yeah? I should love the way God is love. Jesus even describes a vision for the good life in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, when he's asked, what's the most important thing? What's, what does it mean to live a good life? What are the greatest commands that God could lay upon us? Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. Oh, the whole Bible rests on these things. Loving God uh, as he rightly should be loved and loving your neighbour as yourself. Yeah, so this is what C.S. Lewis calls um, uh, agape, the, the godlike love, an altruistic love, a self-giving love, an other person's interest in another person rather than just in myself. Yeah? And actually, as we come to sex and marriage, this is actually a really helpful thing not to leave behind. It's not as if you go, oh yes, when it comes to God, I'm uh, self-forgetful and worshipping. When it comes to my good deeds and altruism, I'm charitable and generous. Um, but when it, then it comes to romance and sex, it's all about me and my desires and being swept up in the moment and my feelings and what I get out of it and whether I'm satisfied or not. No, hang on. E even in the context of romance, hey, hey, even in the context of marriage, even in the context of uh, making love, concern for the other, being selfless, self-giving, and not just seeking my own desires and needs and self-expression and self-fulfillment, not just being concerned for my own stability and status, but actually showing a God-like love in my whole life, including even in my romantic and sex life, thinking of the other person, being considerate and kind, for example, being interested in their needs, and their perspective and their mind, their consent and their liberty, seeing them as another person who has a will that should be honoured and respected, um, and so on. Yeah, this could be a, a great thing, and I, I, I suppose it's a big a challenge for us all as we think about this, coming closer to sex and marriage, that, uh, that absolutely in love, desire, romance, I really hope you, as you approach those things in your life, those of you who you know, get to enjoy that in your life, that you don't use people. I mean, it might be as simple as when a relationship doesn't work out, you don't just ghost them because it'd be too awkward to have to dump them and stuff. That'd be awkward. It's way less awkward if I just ignore them as if they never existed. That's fine. I hope you wouldn't do that. I mean, if you have, I, I hope you learn and grow from that experience. Maybe one day to say sorry for having done it and certainly not to do it next time. Maybe even have the courage to show the dignity to someone if the relationship doesn't work out to talk about it face to face. Yeah? Show a concern for the other, uh, even in romance and desire. So we've thought about God's love to us, a God-like love, this agape that we show to each other. Let's think a bit more about other types of love. What other types of love are there before we get on to particularly sexual and romantic love? I mentioned C.S. Lewis's um, book, for The Four Loves. He talks about storge, philia, eros, and uh, agape. These Greek words, ancient words. Now that these Greek words, it doesn't quite work quite that way, even in ancient Greek. Words have a, a flow of meaning back and forth. You know, so it's, it's kind of being a bit particular here. But it's a, it's a good kind of way of thinking about it. He says, storge can be used to describe the familial bond. Uh, you know, parents to their children, for example, or any kind of gift giving, receiving, where there's a, a convenience and a stability we get from those near us, a neighbourly love that's just the, you know, I'll keep an eye on your property and you keep an eye on mine and that kind of, you know, it, it's the favours for favours that is a good part of society. And when society breaks down and this kind of familial bond is lost, it, it causes real problems, obviously for safety, but even just it becomes quite economically expensive um, when you can't trust people, so everything has to be, you know, bound up in contracts and and um, and scams run riot. Um, uh, 
this is kind of a mutual service that C.S. Lewis says. It's a pretty natural kind of one. Jesus talks about it. He says, hey, look, you know, even evil fathers in general uh, give good gifts to their kids. There are the exceptions, of course. He's not denying that. But a whole lot of people who might be terrible in all sorts of ways, they often say it about criminals and gangsters and stuff. Oh, he was just such a nice bloke. You know, um, to, his, to his immediate friends and family he was. Um, uh, and so Jesus says, yeah, like if a kid comes, even if a kid comes to a gangster, comes to the godfather, to you know, Michael Corleone, and says, can I have some bread? He doesn't give him a snake <laughs> or a stone or a scorpion. Gives good gifts. Even even people, even evil people, by and large, in general terms, um, kind of show that kind of familial bond kind of storge love, as C.S. Lewis calls it. So there's that kind of love. That's a type of love. Philia talks about friendship, more a deliberate, chosen, um, bonding to a person with a shared interest or a shared just rapport. It's not because we're in the same family, not because we're next door to one another necessarily, but uh, uh, we, we find one another in a pretty special kind of thing. You know, I've still got a friend who, who's been a really loyal friend to my whole family, now my kids even, who I met on the first day of high school. We were, there, we were as the tiny little kids in, you know, shirts and ties too big for us going into the private school and we met. We've stayed friends ever since. I've, yeah, he's lived with my family for a while when we were at UTAS. I've lived with his family for a while before that in St Kilda in Melbourne. Um, I, I recently went to his mum's remarriage um, uh, over in Victoria. Um, and so that, that's a friendship that's lasted over a long period of time. He, he, he writes music and shares that and asks for feedback on his lyrics and I'll listen to that and give suggestions and he often won't listen to me but says thanks anyway. And you know, we swap stories about music we like and he sends gifts to our kids for their birthdays and so on. That's friend. There's a gorgeous one in the Bible, the relationship between King David and, Saul, and Jonathan. So Saul uh, was the king of Israel at that time and before David became king, he formed a friendship with the son of the king, Jonathan. And David and Jonathan, the friendship is described really beautifully. Um, uh, I mean, we can even have a look at it if you'd like to flip back or just listen to Samuel 18. Um, describes that um, the, that relationship, and there's a a loyalty described here, affection described here. That's um, oh, sorry, not two Samuel, one Samuel 18. Um, affection described uh, and a pledging of of commitment to one another. Uh, one Samuel. 18, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant, like a promise with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it successfully. Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Or again in... Um, uh, chapter 20, uh, when there's a tragic farewell because uh, Saul is um, determined to kill David, uh, we get the relationship described further in chapter 20, verse 13. If my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely, Jonathan says. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord cuts off everyone of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan David reaffirmed his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 41 and 42, after that the boy had gone, David uh, got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times his face to the ground they kissed each other and wept together but David wept the most Jonathan said to David go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever then David left and Jonathan went back to town beautiful friendship loyal devoted friendship to one another I don't know if you've seen the old um, Christmas rom-com Love Actually has anyone seen Love Actually here is a bit too old yeah I've okay a few have it just brings to mind the gorgeous scene between the ageing, grouchy rock star played by Bill Nye um, and his, uh, his like manager or whatever it is. And at the very end of it, really clumsily and really awkwardly, this ageing, crusty rock star goes, you know, I had an epiphany. I realised, saying to his manager, that you <laughs> are the love of my life. <laughs> it's so sweet. But that's that expression of, of a real um, a friendship, affection and love. That, uh, that friends can show to one another, that is deep and sincere, and uh, can be seen as deeper, the book of Proverbs says, than brotherly love, 
can be seen stronger, that, that 1 Samuel says, than romantic love. So friendship. And eros. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about romantic and sexual love. Now, we often separate them out a lot. You know, so romantic love is one thing and sexual mm. desire is another thing. But actually, they do kind of weave in together. That bound up with romantic love is also sexual attraction. You know, and, and uh, properly lo uh, uh, expressed sexual attraction should bring with it romantic tenderness. It's quite a, a tragic kind of thing when we split them apart and have a sort of an unromantic view of sex and, and a strangely uh, disembodied asexual view of romance. Like the two are kind of bound together, romantic sexual love. Um, I mean, all human loves involve emotion and, and physical experience to some extent, but, but certainly romantic love um, uh, is not just pure spiritual. <laughs> Uh, nor mere desire, but, but is, is the two woven together in a healthy way? Sure, there can be brutish sexual appetite to have a woman, friends that get benefits from one another. It's a transactional, mercenary thing, but that's a pretty wretched, thin, sad version of sex even, let alone sexual love, er erotic love. Um, and it would be similarly wrong to say that romance is entirely, you know, non-desirous. The two go together. There's a great description of this kind of romantic love um, in Genesis as well, where we read about um, Jacob's love for Rachel. And uh, he, he asks Rachel's um, dad, Laban, if he can marry Rachel. Um, and Laban says, yeah, you can marry my daughter if you work for me for seven years. Ugh. Okay, but then, it's lovely what the scriptures say. They say, um, but those seven years seemed only like a day. Such was his love for Rachel. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? So, so there's this, this, this love, this affection, um, uh, kind of bound up together. Yeah? I mean, sometimes uh, kind of Christian thinkers and philosophers and writers can talk as if um, uh, love, uh, romantic love is a modern invention. You know, that, oh, don't buy into this live romantic love. That's a modern invention. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not fundamental. It, you know, don't worry about that business. Just find, you know, they might say in the Christian context, just find someone who's a Christian of the opposite sex who's not, all married, not, not already married and get married. That's all it is. <laughs> that can be the way it can be simplistically said. But actually, uh, yes, the modern focus on romantic love out of all proportion is new, but a place of affection and desire and longing and, and, uh, and companionship goes right back into the Genesis, with the, as we'll, we'll touch on. Uh, it's not good for a man to be alone. There'll be a helper suitable for him together, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, naked and feeling no shame. They'll together serve God in the world. And this delight and this longing and this uh, affection you find in all sorts of places in literature, well before the kind of late medieval or modern period or something. So storge, that familial bond, C.S. Lewis says, um, uh, philia, friendship, eros, romantic sexual love, and then agape, we've already talked about, that God-like love, self-giving love. That, I mentioned that psychologist, John Allen Lee, he talks about romantic loves, um, and, uh, and he, he talks about like 15 of them. He says there's three primary loves, storge, eros, and he also talks about play, ludus, playful kind of uh, enjoyment. Then secondary loves, agape, mania, which he means obsessive love, and pragma, which is kind of more a, a, a marriage of convenience, a relationship of convenience. We need someone to go to parties with, sort of thing. Um, and then he talks about nine tertiary loves, which is a mix of the two, ludic pragma or manic eros or whatever else. You don't need to worry about whether all these terms and whatever's the big point is to say there's more to love than just sex and romance. That's a really big point, hey. There's, and there's more to love than simply um, altruistic um, grace. No, no, we're, we're more complex than that. God's made us more complex than that. We're more dependent than that. We're more physical than that, yeah? Um, there's a range of different types of loves that we all experience. And that's really important as we start to think about love, sex and marriage because... Even when it comes to love, sex and marriage, that kind of love, there is more to life than sex and marriage, than romantic love. Um, that's not the height of all fulfilment. In fact, it's not a necessary one. 
and can live a full, deep life, a deeply meaningful life and significant full life with never experiencing romantic love and sexual fulfilment. We had this passage read from Matthew 19. Jesus talked about eunuchs. Someone who, whether because of the way they were born or some kind of accident that happened or something that was done to them, is unable to engage, have sex. Uh, is that person therefore unable to live a full, meaningful life? Of course not. Jesus himself, the Christians, praise as being God, but also a perfect human. Um, he never got married, never had sex. Did Jesus therefore kind of not live a good life? Yeah? No, there's more to life than just romance and sex. And in fact, you don't even need romance and sex individually to live a good life. Further, even if you do enjoy romantic sex and love and marriage, you ought to also, as I've already said, express that altruistic love, agape. Um, you will discover that uh, uh, more storge-type love, that we've got to just build a house together, raise kids together. We're kind of we're flatmates as well and, and workmates in this household economy as well as being lovers. You know, and these things have to work together. Yeah, there'll be friendship enjoyed. Um, in the context and then fostered in the context of the marriage and so on yeah so you don't want you don't want to ne neglect these other aspects and just say oh it's just all about the romance and the sex uh, more you it would be a great mistake if you thought that your lover could satisfy every need you have in life that sometimes you hear that in modern kind of wedding vows when people write their own wedding vows often the wedding vows rather than being about like a commitment to one another becomes um, you're really cute, you're really funny, so just a bunch of praise, followed by um, uh, a declaration of, of deep, um, highest form of friendship. You're my best friend, um, and, and therefore I can't wait for us to rub each other's feet and help each other when we're grumpy. And that, that becomes that. And it's sweet and it's nice. Um, but um, the risk can be, not only do those vows often forget to make the actual promise <laughs> that marriage is not just about the declaration of love, as, as sweet as that is. It's also saying, I now promise in sickness and in health, for better and for worse. You know, it forgets that sometimes. But also, um, the risk is that uh, your lover may be your best friend, but you're also allowed to have other friends. And actually, someone else may be your best friend. They're not your lover, they're not your wife or husband. But your wife or husband doesn't have to be the person that you, whatever it is, most love playing video games, that most turn to in particular kinds of struggles or questions or issues. That, that actually part of a healthy marriage is for it to be within a community of other relationships, friendships, family, and so on and so forth. Yeah? So it's worth bearing that in mind too. As we turn to second heading, sex. Sex is so love. Lots of different types of love. God's love is the foundation. Uh, God's love is more important um, than sexual love um, and, uh, and that all these other types of love ought to find expression even in sex and marriage. Secondly, sex. In the Bible, sex is a good gift from God. Um, so Christians actually ought to see and understand sex as being part of God's good creation, a good thing to be enjoyed, sexual desire and romantic affection, both good gifts of God. Jesus in Matthew 19 quotes from Genesis which tells this story of, a, of uh, um, a man being created, a woman being created for, for the man. Together they will be uh, working to worship God, finding intimacy, one fleshness, <laughs> uh, no shame, leaving their father and mother to be united together, becoming one flesh. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, in the midst of all the meaninglessness and suffering and injustice of the world, we're told... Enjoy your life, those of you who are married with your wife. Enjoy. Uh, may they satisfy. Proverbs it urges the finding satisfaction um, in your marriage partner. There's a whole poem, the Song of Songs, which is a, uh, a lavishly over-the-top romantic and sexual celebration of two lovers and and their desire for one another, their various dramas, their friends and onlookers and so on and so forth. It's lots of this vivid imagery, praising physical attributes, expressing desire and longing to be together, all these kinds of things. It's right in the middle of the Bible, the Song of Songs. Matthew 19, Jesus again picks up and says, the creator said, he made the male and female, the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how the marriage partners belong to one another. 
and, and that they uh, should be then uh, giving their, their mar marital love to one another, yeah? seeking to please one another in a way that might distract them from other things, even like church and spiritual things, that it's right in a married life to be divided um, from noble causes in a way so that you can seek to please and look after your marriage partner. That's interesting, hey? Um, and all of this stuff is, is this, this uh, marriage and, uh, and union uh, is used as an image of God's love for his people. Uh, Christ is described um, like a, a bride and the church, uh, ch sorry, as a bridegroom, as a groom and the church is bride or, uh, or the church is body as their one flesh like man and woman become one flesh. Uh, the uh, Revelation 21 describes the church coming to God as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Jesus says, you don't fast now, the bridegroom is here, I'm the bridegroom for God's people. Uh, the goodness of romantic sexual love, marriage, is, um, is uh, used to then describe the union of, spiritual union of God with his people um, and that delight and that goodness. Sex is a good gift from God in all its different bits. So sex as reproduction is a good thing. So um, having ch children aren't an interference in life or an inconvenient byproduct of sex, but it's a good part of what sex is just mechanically about, physically about, to, um, to pro uh, procreate, to perpetuate the species, to bear children. That's a, a central part of what sex is about. And it's a good thing. That's good. But it's not just about having kids. Uh, sex is also about pleasure and affection. It's not merely functional. But there's this delight in one another that's spoken of in the scripture. Um, and also, it, it's not merely a pleasure and affection and having kids, but also a, a bond of life commitment to one another, this romantic and commitment covenant bond. Marriage isn't merely functional to have kids, merely functional to have sex and pleasure, but is also a bonding to a life together, a covenant, a romantic sexual union. Sex is a good gift from God. But sex can be confused. All our loves can be confused um, in, in any number of ways. The uh, medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas says, you've got to be careful in comparing God's love to ours because our love is necessarily kind of bound up with our passions, with our body, with our uh, humanness, whereas God is spirit. So all our emotions, we feel them in our hearts, and our blood, in our stomach, in our um, skin, you know, our emotions aren't purely spiritual or something, you know, so all our emotions are a mix of factors, um, yeah, and sex and romance aren't any different, yeah, they, 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 they're tangled up and they easily get confused. Um, Freud was um, a very influential um, uh, thinker in the 19th century and it influenced the 20th century with his pointing out that actually sex isn't always about sex and other things that aren't about sex sometimes can be about sex that that sex can be confused by power control shame grief envy longing for comfort even strangely for spirituality gets jumbled up into sexuality yeah, sex can be confused without even realising it. Sometimes people find them, often people find themselves saying, that wasn't quite what I wanted. Even if at the time I thought it was. And even at the time I thought it was the most important. Now I look back and I go, oh, see, maybe that was bad, actually. And there suddenly is a fresh take on what we thought our desires and our heart was telling us. Yeah? We often don't know ourselves. In fact, part of getting to know yourself better is realising you often don't fully know yourself. Yeah? There's a terrible story in the Old Testament about Amnon and Tamar, which begins by saying how Amnon loved Tamar and longed to be with her. Loved her. He conspires to get her alone in his bedroom, poses himself on her, and, and when she says no, he, he, he forces himself on her. He loved her. He took her, and what's fascinating is what gets said next, mm. he hated her. Yeah. That's a shocking story, but that can describe how loves can be so misleading. He thought he loved her, but it was a pretty predatory sort of love, and once he got what he wanted, it turned to a kind of disgust. 
terrible. In other words, don't simply follow your heart, as the movies and the songs sometimes tell you. Uh, it's not as simple as being true to yourself or your desires. There's a way that might steer or suppress some desires and longings and feelings that isn't kind of just repressing them in some unhealthy way. Let God's, uh, let love direct you, yes. Let God's wisdom teach you the direction in which to even channel your romantic and uh, sexual loves. So sexual love can, is a good gift, but it can be confused. Worse, it can actually be distorted and abused. Yeah? We can end up, sometimes, people can end up being sexually attracted in all sorts of ways that might just be quirky or could actually have a really a, a negative impact on their lives. Um, uh, the wrong, things can become the wrong objects of our desire. We have grow a, a sexual appetite for the wrong person or the wrong kind of person or thing. Um, we can desire something in the wrong context. Well, it's perfectly fine to long someone else, but as soon as they then marry someone else or are dating someone else, it's not for you, is it? Yeah? Uh, sex can become obsessive, kind of like an idolatry almost, or a fixation. As we've already said, sex can be used to control. It can be used as an aspect of violence and domination. Or sex can be used to manipulate yeah. Unsurprisingly, the Bible uses uh, uh, sexual immorality, this kind of distorted and abusive sex. It uses sexual unfaithfulness as a description of sin. Yeah, as, as human beings turn away from God, it's like someone being unfaithful to their marriage partner, like a, a woman cheating on her husband is the image often used. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 warn against all sorts of different kinds of sexual um, whether it's uh, a man marrying his stepmom at the start of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, this shouldn't be. This is, this, is not, this is not a right use of sex, 1 Corinthians 5 uh, says towards the beginning. That's not, that's not the way sex should be expressed. Uh, a bit later on, he, he's in the same passage, he says uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I've written my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But I'm not, uh, um, don't, don't immoral, with sexually immorality people or greedy or idolaters or slanderers or junkards or swindlers. Any number of things that, that um, uh, belong together is not the good way to live. Then in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, uh, he talks about how um, sex is good, but to take your body and then unite it with a prostitute is, is, is not... It's, it's becoming one flesh with someone you're not intending to be one flesh with. You're uniting physically without uniting with that commitment and that bond in the other ways as well. Yeah. Also in chapter 6, he says, uh, uh, don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers won't inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, but you can be washed, you can be sanctified, you can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sex can be distorted. Sex can be abused in any number of ways. So let's apply that before we move finally to marriage in these closing minutes. Two, two points of just application before we move to marriage. Firstly, there's a need for restraint then of sexual desire to, to express it and romantic desire to express it where it belongs. That great song of Solomon celebrating sexual love and desire includes a, a warning refrain. I warn you, don't arouse and awaken love until it so desires. Be careful about where this love and desire is expressed. This is where the concept of modesty comes in. I mean, modesty is a, related to a whole bunch of things. That, you, know, you could be immodest in displays of wealth or power or status. Um, uh, you can be immodest with your words, uh, with your dress or with your actions. But uh, a good form of modesty is one where I think, well, how do I uh, express, say, my sexuality, my sexual desires, or, or wealth, or power, whatever else, status, in a way that actually is restrained appropriately? That means with my words, speak appropriately about precious things like sex, rather than joking crassly and delighting in it. Um, with my dress, there can be different cultural ways to express some restraint and conservative um, uh, respect for sexuality, 
Um, and, and then with, like they're talking like primary school where they talk with kids about there's special private parts of your body and there's more public parts of your body, you know, that there's, there's recognising that kind of thing. Um, and then with my actions, there's what various cultural ways that we express an appropriate modesty um, about sexual desire. So I think, how do I restrain these things, um, put them in a healthy place? Sex is not just to be joked about and talked about as something uh, trashy. Um, uh, that, that my body is not something to be kind of uh, flaunted in a way that is always in a sort of posture of, um, uh, of trying to arouse. And my actions and conduct with others is, you know, not that way. Think through those things. How do I express that kind of, um, uh, for my own good and for the good of others? Yeah? Uh, so it's both for my own good to not be that kind of person, you know, whether it's with, with sex or wealth or status or whatever it is, to not flaunt. Um, and, and over onto others. It's also good for others as well to not be sort of um, alluring or controlling or manipulating. It's worth thinking about that, yeah? Um, and as we're being restrained, we need to be careful about being careful. <laughs> um, uh, the scriptures both warn us against immorality and also legalism, uh, the over-strictness that can feed into double standards and cruelty. Um, those of you who maybe done arts subjects at college or at uni, um, history or philosophy or sociology or whatever, you might have heard of ways people look back in history and talk about um, different cultures uh, or movements, um, uh, control, seeking to police and control, especially women's bodies and sexuality, um, and, uh, and seeking to design systems that suit men. Now there's a lot of really valuable insight into those critiques that are worth looking at because humans will control the police or whatever. Um, th those critiques often can be misguided in the sense that they often are maybe overly simplistic and as a result inaccurate. Because often what cultures are seeking to do, even if they're bad in the way they do it, is not in the first place necessarily police women's body and sexuality and suit male interests but is uh, at their best seeking to protect women's and children's welfare and restrain male lust and abuse, yeah? Um, and uh, the problem is that the imperfect rules controlled by imperfect people leads to double standards and cruelty in practice. So you've got to look at both things, both what was the original intention and often restraining and modesty and cultural norms have intentions that aren't in the first place about suiting male interests and policing uh, women's sexuality, but they can quickly become that way. And so even in our community, <laughs> if we're seeking to have a right approach to sexuality and restraining um, you know, whatever, male predatory behaviour or inappropriate sexual actions and be careful about the morality, if we're not careful, it can end up in practice becoming a thing that becomes shaming or has a double standard or um, in a weird way, sometimes it seems to me, I don't know, I've read stuff online where it seems like the Christians scandalised about sexual immorality seem to like talking about it a lot and linking to it a lot, in a lot of depth, and talking about it in a condemning way that is almost foul-mouthed in its condemnations. And I wonder if that could end up happening, that your uh, being careful for modesty can end up becoming its own kind of immodesty itself. It's worth thinking about. But yes, restraining sexual desire while being careful about the way we restrain it um, is important. Uh, to be in the light, to not even be entertaining and thinking about uh, wrong expressions of sex, to have a sense of controlling it and preserving it for what's good. And then, secondly, inform your romantic and sexual desire, which brings us to this last point of marriage as we close, uh, that, that instead of objectifying others and just chasing my own interests, work out how did God intend sex to be expressed and enjoyed. So let's think about marriage, and, and really I'll just give you a brief definition of marriage, and then we can um, apply that and, and, and break. So building off Genesis 2, Matthew 19, Malachi 2, um, a good summary of marriage uh, is that marriage is a public, consensual, exclusive, lifelong sexual union between a man and a woman uh, for the purposes of bearing and relating children, sexual expression and enjoyment, companionship and social stability. 
marriage is a public, consensual, exclusive, lifelong sexual union between a man and a woman for bearing and raising of children, sexual expression, companionships, and social stability. It's public uh, in the sense that it's not that you do all your married life in public places, but meaning that it's, it's, a, it's an institution of society. It's, it's a building block for where kids get raised and looked after. It's an economic unit. It's a political unit. It's not only that. It's not merely that. Uh, it's not mainly that, but it is that. It's, a, it's a, a public interest to some extent. It's not just none of your business. Yeah, marriage is, is one of the building blocks of human society in that sense. It's consensual. That is, it can't be forced, either being forced to get married or forced within the marriage. It's, it's consenting adults who marry. Now, an arranged marriage isn't necessarily a forced marriage. There's a way for an arranged marriage in those cultures where all the parties, the parents and the, the two potential um, marriage partners, could say no. Do you see? So an arranged marriage can be, we've talked together, we think this couple is good, but the parents could say no, the potential partners could say no. That, that's, uh, that's a consensual expression of cultures that have an arranged marriage situation. Yeah? Both partners should be able to even propose other options yeah? in a healthy, consensual, as an arranged marriage culture. However, even in the arranged marriage culture, if someone runs away and marries someone else, that's still a legitimate marriage. <laughs> um, uh, that that uh, even if that scandalises the community and the parents, uh, a, ma a marriage is uh, is um, is public, it's consensual. Ideally, it, it does involve family and friends. Even if there's no arranging going on, you still would like to, wherever possible, include family, friends, community in the advising, in the planning, in the timing, in the being able to say we endorse this and support this and we're present for this. Yeah, and I guess the relevance of that to dating, those of you who aren't married but maybe are dating, thinking about that, is including your friends and your family in those romantic relationships. It's really important. Often you're so in love with the other person that you don't see their faults. But mum or dad or your brother or your sister or your mates can see right through the slime ball. <laughs> or can see the issues that you need to keep an eye on and so on. Yeah? So, so including others in your romantic life in that sense. Thirdly, it's exclusive and lifelong. Uh, marriage is a loyal commitment. It may be consensual, but it's not casual. It's a good thing to have a stable relationship. That's what marriage is meant to be. What God's joined together, Jesus said, don't let people separate. That comes with great challenges and costs over a lifetime. But hey, you know what? So does divorce. So does avoiding getting married and just trying to navigate romance and sex without it. There may be exceptions, as Jesus acknowledges, because hearts are hard when divorce uh, is necessary, tragically. But going into a marriage with the intention and desire for a lifelong exclusive union is the Bible's vision. And it's a sexual union between a man and a woman. One of the purposes of marriage is to have kids. Marriage, sex, kids, romance, all go together from the Bible's point of view. Sex is both romantic and sexual and procreative. Yeah? Marriage is a place for both romance and sex and open to children. And marriage pictures Jesus in the church, as we've already said. So what does that mean? Firstly, four quick comments. Number one, you guys, as uni students, as young adults, you're beginning your adult lives now. So it's worth thinking about things that way. That's my first thought. You're not at school anymore, you're not in the playground asking your friend to go and talk to the friend of the guy you like or the girl you like to see if they like you and then pass notes to one another and, you know, giggle a bit and whatever else. Um, even the girls might giggle too. Um, it's no longer just just a, a, a kind of feeling out the world of kind of romance and liking and, and all this kind of stuff. You're beginning your adult lives and you need to start making an adjustment in many areas of your life, like doing your own washing and learning how to use email, but also in this area of your romantic life. Um, I'm not saying you need to get married next week or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying begin to realise that you may be beginning relationships that will end marriage and that the other person you may be you know, um, dating is beginning to think that way, even if you're not. And that if you continue on a, um, a dating relationship deep into your 20s with no thought about marriage at all, you could be doing a great unloving disservice to the other person who may not say anything and may be playing it cool, 
Um, but is deep down thinking that that's where they're headed. You're wasting their time. You're wasting their life just so you can have someone to bring to parties or whatever, keep your company. So it's just worth thinking that through to go, this is a time when you have to shift your thinking. Again, I'm not saying that means every dating relationship must involve marriage um, uh, or anything like that, but it's having that an adult perspective that that's in the conversation, yeah? So that's, that's the first thing. A second thing like that, um, uh, so I'll skip that one for time's sake. Third thing, um, uh, when you approach marriage, and so the whole dating process that may end in marriage, uh, you need to be thinking not just being partners for one another or for sex or for friendship, but for the community, for the world, and for God. So you want to have desire for the other person, sure, because uh, marriage is a sexual union. You want to have friendship with the other person because it is a companionship thing, but also a shared faith and purpose. Get married not just for desire and friendship and convenience and stability, but to have a shared faith and purpose together. So you've got to look at that person and go, are they, are they, am I attracted to them? Are they hot? Um, are we friends? Do I like them? Um, and could we build a life of shared faith and purpose together? Pretty hard to build a life of shared faith and purpose together if you're a Christian the other person's not. That's pretty hard. Pretty hard to have a life of shared faith and purpose together if you don't talk together about how you will live together, what your plans are, what your trajectory is in life. Figure out some of that stuff together as well, yeah? The partner that you'll choose to be with, yeah? Got to ask those questions. But also you. Will you be someone who's not only good-looking, <laughs> and a, but also a good friend, and also loving and tender and faithful, and someone who shares a common faith and purpose? More, will you be the kind of person who'll be good to have around when the other person gets really sick? Or one of their parents dies? You know, when disaster strikes, will you be that kind of person? And are you are you being that person? Are you finding that person? Yeah. So that together you can be resolving to be faithful to one another, take delight in one another, and together <coughs> serve the world. I'll finish there. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for one another, for the opportunity to think about these important things. Please make us the kind of people who love you and love others well and enable us to, uh, in our lives where we get to enjoy uh, sexual desire, romantic love and marriage, to do those things in your good way, uh, to restrain the, the misdirected desires, the wrong and abusive expressions of these things and instead do good in loyalty and love and faithfulness and with a purpose to serve you in the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we actually have the opportunity now to have a Q&A session. So yes, we've got that phone number still up on the TV. Um, but if you just want to throw questions at me, and that's absolutely fine as well. Um, but yeah, Mikey, if you'd like to join us back up here for that. Just testing my life. Isn't that no, what we should do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to, by the way, stand up, stretch your legs and all that kind of stuff. You can go to the toilet, it's like down the stairs and around there, those kinds of things. Were you meant to prepare an initial question, is that right? Did you do that? <laughs> Samuel. I got a question. Yeah, um, You are talking a bit about history. Uh -huh. So how do you think contraception and easy contraception has changed our view of reproduction and, and sex and reproduction? You know, because that's only sort of come in from the like 50s, early 60s and before that. Yeah. It was obviously very different the way you thought about sex. Oh yeah, massively. I mean, I think that's generally understood that a, you know one of the huge. I mean, there's been some huge changes in society over the last hundred or so years in many areas of technology and the way that then affects human relationships on all sorts of levels, right down to the family and right down to romance. And yeah, easy and affordable and safe contraception is a massive one that no doubt has changed in many good ways. Um, uh, but it has radically changed the way we, you know, we approach um, uh, relationships. 
you know, so it obviously makes uh, the modern forms of feminism possible because it's a, you know, able to be fully sexually active and also guard against having kids a whole lot more. So it enables you know, much more um, uh, parity between men and women kind of economically and socially in that way. It makes the perception that, yeah, sex and romance can be unhinged from kids just way more thinkable. It just becomes a much more thinkable thing to just think of sex as this thing entirely separate from kids. So, you know, and, and, and marriage is entirely separate from kids. Uh, whereas historically and definitely in the Bible's perspective, you know, marriage, sex, love, children just all go together, you know, as, as one thing. And so, yeah, it's just created a whole new way. I think it's pretty new and pretty unusual. I mean, it does bring, as I say, some, some good benefits to it, right? So that though, for those, um, I, well, here's an example. Um, I heard a historian saying, um, that archaeologists had um, uncovered an ancient brothel. And um, I think this was on John Dixon's podcast. And, uh, and someone asked the archaeologist, how do you know it's an ancient brothel? Uh, <laughs> it's a horrible um, example, and I apologise in advance. And the archaeologist said, oh, because of the, the baby graveyard outside. Because what do you do if you're going to have prostitutes where uh, easy and affordable and safe contraception is available? You know that regularly your prostitute, prostitutes will get pregnant and then you'll have to kill the kid. So, so that, that's an example of a, a major, and I apologise, that is quite a shocking example, but yeah, that, that's, that's an example right there. And so in that sense, insofar as people will keep having sex outside of marriage, isn't it great that comparatively a lot less of that is happening? Now, of course, there's also easier, safe and affordable approaches to abortion now in our society that has also come in as well. Um, but uh, yeah, and there's a lot of situations where people otherwise would, you know, would be pregnant and it wouldn't be a good thing that have been prevented. So there you go, it, there's some good things to it, but it definitely has changed things. I'll try and keep my questions, answers shorter. Um, a matter of um, question line, um, I need the code from your... <laughs> <laughs> to log into the um, platform, yeah. yep. It's worth saying that there's um, uh, some people say, oh, hang on, if um, sex is meant to be about having kids, does that mean every you know you should never use contraception? So it's eight, eight, six, eight, one, three, two. Sarah, they'll come through. That's kind of the Roman Catholic view, so that's why technically Roman Catholics don't endorse any form of contraception. But every every individual act of sex must be open to having kids. Whereas the Protestant stance um, to contraception is, no, no, that marriage itself as an institution ought to be open to having kids. But that doesn't mean that every single act of making love must be open to having kids. Yeah. On that, do you think Christians should be accepting of uh, using contraception in marriage? So for Christians? Yeah, it's worth being aware of the fact that some forms of contraception aren't fundamentally contraceptives, but... Uh, 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 early forms of abortificants, so their primary purpose is actually to abort uh, some early form of conception rather than to prevent conception. But but those forms of contraception that are preventing conception, yeah, uh, for this exact reason, I, I think that has a legitimate place. Um, uh, but the marriage relationship as a whole should be one that is is designed and ordered to be one by God that's open to having kids. Yeah. Not to kind of continue on the conversation. If I was to have kids, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, on that note, how would you then respond to some Levitical laws which talk about the idea of spilling seed as being a bad thing? Um, yeah, so the Old Testament has a whole lot of ceremonial laws um, and, and all sorts of bodily emissions become symbolic symbols of bleeding and therefore dying, I think is maybe the main symbolic connotation. Yeah. Mm. And so I think when it re you read it in that light, to go there's a whole lot of things that aren't morally and ethically wrong at all, but they, they come to serve a symbolic uh, purpose and reminder. So uncleanness in Leviticus is not fundamentally immoral or ungodly. Um, it's normal for all of God's people to have periods of uncleanness, including menstruation, actually, there you go, pun intended. Um, there are various... Um, uh, times where all God's people will be unclean at various points. And that doesn't mean they're immoral or ungodly or whatever. Uh, but they, in that process, they're reminded of, uh, of their mortality, of, reminded of their sin, even though that isn't a sinful thing, uh, reminded of God's purity and so on. 
We might have a break from this, guys, shall we? Yeah, I've yeah. just got one that's come okay. through. Um, how prolific was sex outside of marriage before the sexual revolution, say in Victorian times or the Middle Ages, where Christian ethics were held in high regard? Uh, I mean, I can't give you like a, a statistical thing off the top of my head. But if, I mean, I, I was going to quote from this, but I already went forever. I mean, Anna Karenin is a great book written by a, a, a Russian Orthodox writer, Leo Tolstoy, and that's that's about sex outside of marriage. It doesn't go well for Anna. Um, um, and actually, that has an example. I was going to quote from where once this this um, uh, unfaithful relationship uh, gets consummated again to get an example of oh, it's not what I wanted. You know, and now I finally have all I wanted. And, oh, is that it? Um, so yes, it certainly did happen. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, often um, at the great uh, disadvantage of women. You know, in, in any number of ways, and kids who were then the results of that. And often there were double standards where the men could get away with it, and the, and the women would bear the censure and the shame for it. So, so yes, it was. It came at often at a greater cost. Um, and yeah, look, the Victorian era is both a great time and a terrible time at once. Like, there are so many great things about it, great in terms of advancement of technology and of learning and modern forms of democracy and modern forms of economy and the spread of the gospel. It was, you know, one of the most evangelical eras in history uh, in many good ways. Uh, but at the same time, like every era, it had its sins and its blind spots, quite seriously so, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the racism that came with colonialism and the, the violence that had to maintain it. Um, yeah, and in terms of these double standards that would exist within proper society as opposed to improper society and, and so on and so forth. If you define marriage as a way to have kids, does that mean if you don't want kids, you shouldn't get married, or is it wrong for two people to get married with the intention to have no kids? It's a great question. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say you're, you're wrong to. I think there's something, a step back from wrong, which is uh, you know, you're, you're not kind of acting in order with the way these things work together, you know, or something like that. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's a way you could say, well, it's not wrong, but then neither is eating a lawnmower, but I'm not saying you should do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's that kind of... Um, uh, and especially so if it's got to do with the other partner. And I guess that's the most important thing. That um, Again, like we talk a lot about consent these days and how consent is more than just verbal. Because at the initial stages of talking about marriage and dating and romance and stuff, one partner might say, oh, I don't want kids either. Yeah, yeah, who needs kids? Or I don't need to get married. Yeah, yeah, who needs to get married? Not being fully honest, you know. The, the, the person is kind of going deep down, oh, I'm kind of hoping you will want to get married and you will want to have kids. And I'm not being fully honest about it. So that's the first thing to go, hang on, to go into it and really think it is legitimate for you to be outraged later if the other person says, I want to have kids and this is a deal breaker for our marriage. You're the one, you're, you don't have a right then to say, hang on, I thought we agreed we wouldn't have kids. So that'd be the first thing I'd say. Maybe that's the best way to put it. To go in and think you're, you're right if the other partner changes their mind, I think you're in the wrong at that point. That'd be the first. Second is, it is one of the areas that's really important to be honest with the other partner before marriage. You know that really awkward moment that's kind of an unnecessary clumsy formality but in most wedding ceremonies does anyone have a reason to say why these two people shouldn't get married? Now that, that, that's a uh, they just, those things should all be caught well before that day so it's a kind of a liturgical formality. That's meant to catch things like I've got evidence that one of these people is already married and hasn't divorced. I've got evidence these people are related but you know put in different places before, you know, um, and they came of age. Um, or it could be um, I've got evidence that one of them can't have kids. And that actually would be a, a, um, a justification for dissolution of the marriage, to say, hey, we went into this, and given that having kids is one of the things that's part of marriage, that the fact that you didn't let me know that you couldn't before we got married, it doesn't mean that one you can change your mind later. Like, Hang on, well, since we can't have kids and now I want kids, you're divorced. But that's something you should be upfront about if you know it before you get married, given that it's part of marriage. Yeah. And there's lots, of, again, it's so important to realise that having kids is a good thing um, and raising kids is a good thing. It's difficult, tiring, it's expensive, makes you miserable in many ways in the short term. Um, uh, but it gives deep fulfilment and it, it's um, uh, for societies like Australia that doesn't, isn't so populous. You know, largely, you know, we, we maintain our economy by 
immigration by other people from other places who have more kids coming here. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that we as a country, if we closed all our borders, would get old and die and there'd be no one to work in the nursing homes eventually because we don't have as many kids. Yeah, so there is a place in which you know, having kids is economically good, it's, it's, um, it's a good use of your time, it's raising up a next generation, it's loving and cherishing, it's, it's not a waste of a life being just a mum or just a dad. We're out of questions, are we? Great. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, we'll still be around. I would be talking yeah. about it too. Hey, yeah. Absolutely. So if you have any other questions at all or something pops up later on, feel free to grab someone that you've seen at the front tonight, whether that be Mikey or myself. Um, and, yeah, we're more than welcome to um, try to answer questions as best as we can. And just keep the conversation going in general. Like if there are things that um, you don't necessarily have questions about but you want to talk about more with one another, don't let the conversation just jump straight to what's next and food and let's go from there but um yeah keep the conversations going um after this as well um well that comes to the formal end of our night tonight